Yeah, hi. I'm Ian. I'm a senior software engineer at Riot Games, working on the League of Legends data team. And I am a huge espresso guy. I love Columbia Roasts, and I'm a bit of a coffee snob. So find me at your local LA coffee place, and let's have a coffee together. You know what the first question is going to be. What's the first question? Dude, what the hell is this? I thought you were joking when you said that you actually really are into the Mean Girls movie. And then it turns out before we hit record, you are telling us all about a party you organized all around Mean yeah. Girls and you do that every year. So this wasn't yeah. like a joke. You weren't lying about this. Yeah, I'm, I'm very serious. Uh, for like the last 10 years, I've had a Mean Girls party every year on October 3rd. And this year was the most extravagant. We got a house on the beach. There's probably, you know, roughly like 25 people there. So uh, we had a bunch of games. Like we had Pictionary where prompts were like based on the movie. There's like conversation starter cards based on like quotes from the movie. There was quotes that we hit around the house from the movie. Um, there was like a guest book where you could take a Polaroid photo and like write your own burn book entry for those of you familiar with the movie. <laughs> So yeah, it was really over the top. A lot of fun. Yeah, you went all out, man. Yeah. I am very surprised at the level of dedication you show to this. And what kind of people show up to this? What 25 people in LA did you con into going? Are they all diehard fans like you? I, I, I mean, you know, any 20-something white woman is going to come to that. <laughs> <laughs> and turns out LA is full of them. Uh, so exactly, my people. <laughs> you had to cap it at twenty-five people, huh? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, amazing today. I mean, as much as I would love to chat with you about Mean Girls parties that you throw, we're not here to talk about that. We just got off of a incredible conversation with Ian, who is working at Riot Games, as you all just heard. What were your takeaways, man? What did you think about that? Yeah, you know, it was super interesting uh, chatting with Ian. Uh, you know, I've never really seen how ML might be used in sort of a gaming space. And uh, I'm not an avid gamer myself. So it was just like interesting to see some of the things that might be different, you know, uh, like in particular, there's like data sources they have that are kind of like uh, records of the game that they're able to use and it's like fully baked. Oh, that's so good. You yeah. don't have to go through this process of uh, trying to aggregate a bunch of different data sources to like, uh, you know, create a normalized view. Like a lot of the typical work that data engineers do, it's just like a nice snapshot of everything that happened. Um, and so that's a very interesting difference. Um, also just interesting to, you know, look into like the challenges of integrating with legacy systems where it's like, hey, we have like this 10 year old C++ code base. Mm -hmm. um, I'm afraid to touch that, you know. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, so just, just very interesting to see how things uh, are a little bit different, but also how there's a lot of overlaps and uh, a lot of similarity with like uh, all of the other work that I've been familiar with. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And for some context for everybody that's listening. Ian came on first to the Pancake Stacks meetup that we do once a month in Skylar Leeds, and he broke down the Riot Games stack in so much detail. It was incredible. I loved it, and I loved it because he didn't just give us slides. He what he had like a Miro board, and you could dig into any specific piece that you wanted, and so that was really cool because we got to kind of choose our own adventure and ask him about this stuff, and after that. I was 
yeah, I was just really, really blown away by it. And I thought, well, let's try and get him on to the podcast, see if he'll do it. And uh, we lucked out. He said he would do it. And also a little tidbit, a little side note, you guys went to the same college. What's this? You guys knew each other back in the day? Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, I think we only had like one class, um, but I, I was highly involved in like all the clubs and, and universities. So we crossed paths a lot. Um, but yeah, didn't uh, we actually didn't really keep in touch. And when I moved back to L.A., and I was starting like the, the local MLOS meetup. I realized he was like working in this space. And I had no idea. And so like we reconnected. <laughs> so it's been super cool to get him integrated in the community and whatnot. Dude, so it's becoming like a six degrees of Skylar Payne type scenario now. <laughs> Anyone that is working in ML Ops, you can connect to Skylar by, by at least six degrees. I, I, I love to meet people. So very, very, I'm trying to, I'm trying to get everybody's uh, pain number down to one or two, you know? Incredible. So <laughs> that's it. We're going to jump into this conversation. Enjoy everyone. If you are listening and you enjoy the conversation, like always, I would ask Skylar and I both are politely asking you to hit the like button, leave us a review if you're listening on Spotify or Apple, just anything you can do to let the algorithm know that this is an awesome podcast and more people should listen to it. That would mean the world to us. All right, let's jump into it. Awesome. Ready for all kinds of deep questions about life and the meaning of it? Definitely. Like, dude, I didn't sign up for that kind of podcast. What the hell do you think this is? Rick Roll. I'm here for it. I think, oh, yeah. Uh, Skylar and I share a uh, Skylar and I share a like keen awareness of mental health in like the engineering community. Mm. So like I would not be disappointed if it went that direction either. <laughs> wait, wait, unpack that a little bit more. Why? Why I know Skylar, I know why Skylar does, but where where's that come from from you i mean i think it's just like i i think skylar you also grew up in you grew up in like uh somewhere else like also middle california kind of desert land ish yeah um i come from similar area like in the middle of california or middle ish of california wasn't much going on there's a lot of like macho machismo expectations of you and like um I guess like as you as you kind of get older, you maybe have to start reflecting on that a, a lot more to understand like who you are and think about it. And like, uh, you know, for me, like a lot of a lot of hiding under like, oh, I'm going to build like super cool stuff. I'm going to build like, you know, like I'm going to be like the best engineer a lot of people have ever met, like that kind of like needing to prove yourself. But I think something that both that that we maybe both shared just like gone through different paths. So. Um, that's like wh- where it comes from for me probably isn't too dissimilar from uh, like the shape of Skylar's story but all the details are definitely very different <laughs> and what was your way out of that or how did you cope with that I mean I went to uh, by the time I got by the time I went to like university and like got out of got out of the the desert that was pretty much what what needed to start with me so that and then like you know therapy and then just like also just enjoying uh kind of enjoying the career as opposed to um 
trying to one up everybody, which is like a weird like mental change that happens. That's mm. those are probably the things that allowed me to like fully leave the toxic state behind. Um, and it's interesting because it's interesting because like I think that's one of the things that makes Riot like a really interesting place to work at, especially as an engineer. Um, just because like they're very kind of keenly aware of you know like Riot has had a lot of history with like problematic characters um so i think they're very keenly aware of like how you know like uh like like a broy culture could burn people out or how like burnout culture can lead to like a bunch of other negative things so they try to really kind of encourage all their employees to you know like take care of their mental health they have a lot of like extra benefits for like therapy or, or anything like that um so I think Riot is probably the most supportive company I've been at that that like cares about um like everyone's kind of like mental well-being. Huh. Uh, which was kind of a funny happenstance because I didn't go there intending on that. I just went there because I was like, oh dude, Riot's super sick. <laughs> like they have free coffee, man. What's up? <laughs> uh after being there, you kind of get more of that um I guess like quality of quality of life stuff. How much has your video game playing increased since going to work at Riot? Uh, it's definitely gone up. <laughs> like, it's not uncommon for people to like play a game of League or TFT together on a Friday. Um, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's definitely not uncommon to go into the office and to see people playing games. We have like, you know, the, the PC bang on campus so you can like, play games together we have a bunch of like arcade games and we have a like a console room of a bunch of old old consoles for for those who like to play like older games and stuff i'm i have been getting into like playing more retro games ish and like i use the word retro really really in quotes there what does that mean like duck hunt no that, that i think that's like true true retro but like oh, okay <laughs> uh there's like the 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 dot hack series on on playstation 2 which is like mm. a game i didn't play except for like growing up in my friend's house all the old final fantasies and the single digits um deus ex like the original one <laughs> just like a lot of those kind of games have I've, I've been giving a lot more love to now that i have uh now that i see a lot of other people doing that at, at work like I've seen, I've come to work before and I've seen dudes who just are playing like Subnautica for like three days because <laughs> they're like really into it. They're like, oh my God, I gotta, I gotta do the thing. I gotta build this super <laughs> sick underwater base. Everything else can happen later. It's <laughs> fun. Like it's, it, it, it makes the, I don't know. It's very relaxing for me. Yeah. I, I believe it. It goes back to what we were talking about, man. Uh, so now jumping into your career and a little bit of the career progression, you went from software engineer to data engineer at Adobe, right? Yeah, I um, I, I started at uh, I started at Adobe as like a co-op kind of deal. They they were doing it where like I was working twenty to thirty hours while going to school, um, and then like full summer internships during the summer. Um, and I worked with a team there doing kind of uh, 
it was almost closer to like a consulting kind of role. I would work a lot with Adobe customers to like build their like solutions. And that was all in the video tech space. Um, I went to data engineering um, around like the 2018 mark. Um, and I think back then, uh, and still kind of now, Adobe still kind of calls like some roles of a data engineer, more like the traditional like SQL kind of data warehousing roles. And then there are data engineers who are more focused on like automation and that kind of stuff. I kind of got to fall in the latter half of that. So I was working on a lot of um, tooling for like, actually a lot of the stuff that you hear, um, you know, like DBT trying to solve around like metrics layers or like even even some of the realms of like observability, data observability. Um, and we were building like our own custom stack from the ground up on top of like Zookeeper. So like we were building our own orchestration engine. We were building like our own extensions on top of Postgres to be able to do like upserts and all this crazy stuff. Um, so that team was going like super hard in, in the realm of like building the infrastructure kind of from the ground up. Um, a lot of it didn't work, I think, but it was it was good for me, like early career, because I got to like spend a lot of time thinking about like, how do orchestration engines work? Like what what are the challenging things that Airflow is doing that I might not understand like going into it at first? Um, from there, I went to DoorDash and I think you guys interviewed Hien, maybe also on this podcast. Um, yeah, yep. So, so there I was at DoorDash. I was, I was there for a little bit before Hien started. And then Hien started like around my eight month mark, I think. Um, and yeah, over there, it was just like kind of a like explosion of work. I was doing like anything from like data privacy stuff with um, like CCPA and like getting all that kind of sussed out on the data warehouse layer to like uh, Cassandra replication because it wasn't really a good answer for that at the time. Um, so we were like building our own Flink streaming applications on top of like Debezium event streams. Um, if you go back into like Debezium Cassandra, like in the Discord and stuff like that, I was I was in there when there were like a hundred people or something asking like, how do you build the freaking jar? Like, how can I ship this? Yada, 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 because we were trying to solve that, that kind of stuff. Um, so I was working on that and just like a plethora of other stuff, a lot of like container and DevOpsy stuff too. Um, and then I came to Riot kind of at the start of the pandemic, uh, moved back down to Southern California. Uh, yeah, and then out here, I kind of, at Riot, I've kind of spent a little bit of time in kind of the game build space. That's the team I joined when I initially came to Riot. It was like SRE and game build. And then went over to data, to, to data just kind of where where I feel like I belong. That's like the the that's like my SME. But lots of funny things happened when I was like going through the interviews for data, like the role filled as I was doing the on-site interview. So they were like, well, you passed the on-site and we still want you to come to Riot, but the role's not here anymore. So you're gonna go to that team. <laughs> I was like, heck yeah, let's go. <laughs> so, that's awesome. Um, so yeah, now I'm on the, and now I'm on the data, I guess like we're kind of like data ops or like ML ops. So, um, 
I guess some of the stuff I skimmed over there when I was at DoorDash was we were also there's a series of um DoorDash blog posts about a system called Sybil, um, which was which is kind of like the feature store that 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 DoorDash has built. Um and way back in like the 2019 era, um the search team, kind of the ML team and data infra, we all worked like really closely doing a lot of their kind of ML stack. Um, so they were doing a lot of the like like pure algo development, if you will, or like training and stuff. But our team was like heavily involved in just like how do you how do you maintain your EMR infrastructure? How do you tie this in with Airflow? How are you going to do live inference? Um, you know, and I think they they were they were looking at the problem of like how do we pull features down from Snowflake without having like Snowflake being in the uh, you know in the core path of a request. Um, so a lot of those like kind of operations questions around machine learning was stuff we were we were all kind of thinking about, and I was able to get to be a part of um, in a couple different like small projects and stuff like that. Um, but I guess because we had like really proficient leaders or people who had been thinking in this space a lot, maybe I like got to absorb a lot more of it. So a lot of that is like coming out in the work we're doing in on LDC, where we're thinking a lot about like, how are we doing live inference, like in a game binary, how do we do live inference, you know, post games, how do we do like better data, I guess like data ingestion systems and like data ops is kind of like another realm that we're really kind of exploring. Um, yeah, yeah so uh, I guess it's kind of a career path. <laughs> yeah, so it, it's really interesting how you describe how, um, you know, coming into Riot, you started out in reliability. And, uh, you know, I think that this is a big topic on people's minds, topical today, because uh, TwimmelCon is happening today. And uh, Todd Underwood and Neil Murphy gave like a keynote talking about reliable machine learning. Definitely a big topic, and uh, I don't think there's a lot of expertise. So, just curious to hear a little bit about whether you feel whatever you learned and did, sort of like working specifically on reliability. Is there any like lessons you were able to like apply as you like move more into like this data and ML ops space? Um, maybe. I mean, I think the to be honest, the biggest thing I kind of took away from like my kind of stint in SRE. Um, is that like a lot of the problems we're seeing in ML ops and in data engineering, like in the 2020s, 2019s, um, they're all kind of of the same shape. Like I, I very much see, um, I very much see like metric, metric or feature stores that do like point in time calculations, um, kind of like Feather talks about. Uh, not being too dissimilar to solving the problem of slowly changing dimensions, um, which was also, you know, like can, can also be solved by like some of the, or have been solved by some of the bigger like data, data companies like Airbnb or whatever, where they were solving it by just like snapshotting everything and using like SQL macros to be able to say like, oh, you want to understand like, you know, how many people rented houses in Venezuela and the data needs to look like it did on March 31st. Well, don't worry, use the SQL macro and we'll, we'll be able to do that for you. Um, and a lot of those problems are like things that Google SRE were kind of thinking about 
just in like a much different context uh, back when they were solving it. Like, I, I will not say that like service configuration is anywhere near similar to like, like data or like training a feature. But you know, they're they're also thinking about like, what would a config store be? How could we pull config out? You know, as it was in, at on, you know, as it was on New Year's Day before the incident happened. How could we track the changes between this configuration and that configuration? Um, and I think like the other thing it's kind of shown me is the um, kind of this like don't standing on the backs of giants kind of thing is like really true in in a lot of these bigger companies. Um, I don't think I realized it when I was at DoorDash, but you know, we had, you know, we had our own like Flink infrastructure. We had our own Docker infrastructure. We had our own way to like build and deploy uh, containers and like kind of unfurl them in Jenkins jobs to do cool optimizations or whatever. Um, and similarly, as I'm, as I'm sure maybe you guys have experienced, but like at companies like LinkedIn or like Uber, you know, they, they'll have like, oh, this is our custom, you know, Spark mapper system that we built from scratch, but it secretly relies on like 200 other Uber technologies that helped kind of unlock its ability. Um, and like, as we come over to Riot, or as I come over to Riot, I just, I, I see that kind of everywhere. And it just changes the perspective on how I like, how I build and design things, you know, like we're, we're looking at, um, just to like kind of give an example where we're looking at, um, we, we do these, uh, our team builds these recommender systems, which are um, just kind of your classic collaborative filtering models. Um, the, the, the hitch being we create it at compile time and we actually embed it into the game binary. Um, so these kind of features are, like stored in the binary code. So like if you feasibly, if you were able to like unpack the binary and like explode it as like a hex dump, you would see some decibel number <laughs> buried underneath that is like our feature or something. Um, and we're trying to ask ourselves like, how could we actually like, you know, pull this out and like not do it in compile time and read it from like a service or read it from some configuration or whatever. And Riot has like six or seven different ways to solve this spewed across all the different games, all with different levers that you might want to tweak and, and twist. Um, and it's just like, man, like the, the, the people who built, you know, like it, it just, it, it tells the story so differently from people like the, um, you guys recently had the guy who worked on feather for like six years or something before it got open source. And it's like, man, the, like, the inception of that was probably like, hey, we can like sit on top of LinkedIn service A and LinkedIn service B and LinkedIn service C and like offer this super cool thing. And then six years later, it's this like kind of generic cloud agnostic tool. Um, and I think that's something that like I want to see coming out of the ML space is like, you know, we have all these companies who are built on top of like all these super cool tools, like moving them into the open source, moving them into like more holistic packages. Um, I think that'd be great. Like, you know, a hypothetical would be like any of the stuff we might do around like PyTorch and game compilation. 
if we were able to like open source that and show like, hey, you want to do like these crazy embedded models, like Riot has solved it and you can install the package on GitHub. Um, that's kind of the stuff I, I think that I, that's mostly what I've learned from like the SRE realm, just because SRE has been doing this kind of stuff for like 15 years now, right? Like there are companies based around what were SRE practices that are now just like commonplace. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, and so I think like one of the things you're kind of getting at is there's a lot of uh, people who have solved very similar problems in like a slightly different domain. And uh, one of the things you often hear uh, a criticism, of, I think, of like the ML ops space is that like, hey, you guys need to read like database literature. We've been doing this stuff for a long time, you know, uh, in particular, if you haven't read anything uh, from uh, Shreya Shankar, I don't know if I'm pronouncing her name right. Hopefully I'm not butchering it. Uh, but she has some excellent writing where she talks about this. She's uh, doing a PhD in database management systems now. Um, and it's cool to see the connections you can have there. Um, but yeah, yeah, that, that's super cool. Uh, and definitely agree on sort of the, you know, all these tools. You, you hit the nail on the head with Feather. Definitely it was something that like started out built on top of all these LinkedIn systems. And slowly you had to decouple it. Um, but yeah, I would love to maybe kind of like switch gears a bit, talk a little bit about what you're doing at Riot. Uh, you gave a great presentation to Pancake Stacks and had like a nice mm -hmm. mind map, walked us through all the architecture. Um, and it looked like you were doing uh, a lot of cool stuff with a lot of different tools. Um, it seems like, uh, you know, uh, would love to just like maybe talk a little bit about, you know, what are the things that you've built out uh, at Riot? What are the challenges you solved? And, you know, maybe challenges that are still open for you. Yeah, I think I'll also go ahead and like kind of re-summarize like a little bit of the architecture just for anyone listening who didn't get to see my, um, as you guys call it, awesome, as I thought of it, oh shit, what am I going to present kind of deal. Um, so yeah, I think, so Riot is a big company. We have a couple, we're like a games as a service company. We have a couple games out. Um, League is one of them, League of Legends. It's like a MOBA game. Um, I'm only explaining this part. There was a little bit of feedback during the last, during the session, where it's like, I don't want to jargon people a bit too much. So like, just in the basic mechanic of the game, it's like a 10, it's like a 10 player game, 5v5. Uh, you each like pick a champion um, that kind of falls into a specific role within your team composition. Um, these are all kind of based off of kind of the MOBA archetype. Um, so if you're at all familiar with MOBAs, you'll know what that means. If not, just think about it as like where you're playing on the map and kind of like the activities you typically do. Um, <clears throat> and uh, League is built on top of its own like custom game engine that was developed Years ago, it was developed by our founders kind of as a as a as a fork of Dota 2. Um, or maybe it was the OG Dota. Unfortunately, I don't remember. Um, if you're really super interested, there's like a Netflix documentary on on Riot. You can go and watch that and it'll fill you in on all the nitty-gritty details. But uh for our purposes, um so we have this this kind of old game engine that's gone through like a lot of changes and and kind of gone through um you know like some we're we're on like patch release 12 uh i think we're like 12 19 12 20 now 
uh, and we do like releases every two weeks. So we've been doing this for a long time. Um, and we, and, and the, 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 the game is like an entirely online game. So we have a suite of mic background services that kind of help support the game. Um, League is mostly a Java shop. So we've got this kind of web of Java services um, that help, you know, help a player kind of log in, see the client, buy stuff, um, get match made against other people, build your teams, all that stuff, get you in the game um, and collect kind of end of game data summary, end of game data statistics and stuff. So you can kind of see how well you've been doing against all your friends and all that good stuff. So uh, from there, we, we, we kind of, the, the data journey starts, I guess. So Java systems, C++ systems, it's probably all you really need to know about the game architecture. Um, and from there, we kind of collect data in a couple different spaces. Um, we do your typical like DB scrapes uh, and your typical like services send kind of audit telemetry out to a Kafka that we then ingest, yada, yada. Um, hopefully that's not too dissimilar to what a lot of other people are kind of looking at. Um, we do have one really interesting kind of data ingestion scheme, um, which is this, which is a problem we're also thinking about, which is this like end of game data. I don't, I'm not sure if you guys have experienced this, but you know, at least at like DoorDash, there was never a data set that got generated at the end of a delivery that fully described the delivery. We generally had to like ping a bunch of services and scrape a lot of databases to kind of like reconstitute the story. Um, because of like how online video games work, uh, at least ours in particular with uh, server-side server authoritative decision-making, everything gets logged out in the game server into like this kind of nicely compact JSON file. So we kind of get this like fully referentially complete data file that we can then like send out to other systems to do like, just like, I, I guess really kind of interesting like uh, player level and game level like aggregations without even having to hit the data warehouse. Um, so from there, you know, we, we're, doing, we're doing some interesting stuff there that I can talk about if, if there's anything that kind of pops up or piques interest. But from there, we push that data into um, our Hive data warehouse. And we kind of have two Hive data warehouses. We have like an on-premise one that we manage and we're moving over to AWS Glue for, for kind of a lot of that management. Um, and the kind of, I guess, kind of the space which most like ML practitioners are, are interested in is like, once, once the data has kind of landed in our data warehouse, we have, you know, kind of the typical series of like decision science jobs that compute like business metrics and all that stuff. But we also have a series of, I guess, jobs you'd call them that are doing more like feature engineering or feature computations and sticking that into um, one of three different places. Sometimes it lands back in Hive. Sometimes it lands in S3 as like a tar gz file that a service can kind of pick up and understand. Um, we kind of do that, that when trying to like detect people who have like opened up the same account under like two different names or something. We'll use this kind of S3 path to try to detect like, oh, hey, you were 
we actually detected you're a, a second client. We're going to merge your accounts together or whatever. Um, or we actually go into kind of our own like RocksDB implemented on top of S3 feature store, which just allows us to do like, it, it just allows us to have more, I guess, uh, like isolation guarantees or maybe like idempotent guarantees on top of data transformations. Um, and that kind of data store powers some of the models we're doing around like, are you feeding in game? Are you purposely playing bad? Do we need to ban you? Um, and I guess kind of the, the more maybe awkward or more different kind of approach from there is like, on occasion, we also take some of this data and some of these models and we serialize it or embed it into the game code. So then on the following patch, you will get like the next version of our model. Um, we do this with like how we detect a player's lane. So, you know, when they're playing a game, they can pick one of five different lanes, but they don't tell us what it is explicitly. So we kind of have to infer it from your playing activity. So that kind of decision tree, we actually build way up in the kind of data warehouse layer and stuff it into the game binary. Um, so yeah, we're, we're, we're kind of solving inference in like three different spots, like in-game, at service time, or sometimes in like the decision science space. Um, and I guess a lot of the problems that I'm working on now are in that kind of game inference space. How can we kind of do more like game personalization um, and a lot around like, how do we do, how do you, how do you do like democratization of features? How do you do monitoring of that stuff? Um, we're still kind of at the, the beginning of that journey. Hey there, I'm Vasilina Staneva and I'm Head of Product at Teachable Hub. And if you are into MLOps and want to hear more than just buzzwords, subscribe to the MLOps community podcast and listen to the best practitioners in the field sharing their wisdom. There's something you said when uh, when you were going through the past. All right, let me start that one over. <laughs> lost my train of awesome. thought because I, like <laughs> I cut off Skyler. Skyler, man, sorry, I jumped right in. Uh, but basically, there was so there was something you said when we had the pancake stacks and. I thought it was fascinating on like the whole real time element and why you didn't want to do real time. Um, can you jog my memory on exactly what that was about? Sure. Yeah, I think um, so. I, I kind of mentioned how we'll kind of compute some models and kind of then like embed them into the game. Um, so like, you know, if you if you imagine like a decision tree, like just like not a bagged decision tree, no ensemble methods here, just like a single plain old decision tree that's split by information gain or whatever. You have all of the splits um, and ideally you'd be able to, you know, train on these splits and update them as you get new data and not have that be, you know, kind of like, every two weeks or every six months or something. Like ideally you do it pretty often to kind of keep your accuracy pretty high. Um, the challenge that we we are kind of facing is like, 
there are a lot of challenges around like a video game trying trying to do these kinds of things. Um, so an example might be like, hey, in order for us to compute your decision tree, uh, you know, we need to spawn a new thread. And if we spawn a new thread, you may take too much frame computation time and then we'll see player hitches. So you don't want to do that. So you have to have like a hyper-optimized kind of decision tree, which is already like, I mean, if you're if you're following the research on things like JAX or, or any of these like computational engines, um, you can actually get pretty fast stuff, but it's still pretty difficult to do that within like a really fixed amount of time. Um, we have a lot of additional layers of like network security that we kind of have to do. Um, and I think this stems from the fact that like League is a pretty big game and a lot of people play it. We tend to get like a lot of people trying to DDoS us or a lot of people trying to uh, kind of find their way into our infrastructure, uh, kind of similar to the, the social engineering thing that happened at Uber recently. Um, so there are a lot of a lot of extra steps taken to say like, hey, game servers can't even do TCP connections. So like it's, it's difficult to build a service that's like all UDP only, blah, 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 to do that kind of stuff at the game server level. Um, and then kind of the final bit is, so, so there's the technical reason of like rendering is hard when you're doing like these big massive mathematical computations while playing a game. Um, there's a lot of like added network kind of security stuff that is just like stuff we haven't really thought about how to go around yet or we aren't really sure how to proceed kind of safely and ethically. Um, and like League is a older game um, and there's a lot of historical inertia kind of going against some of these changes. Um, and that's not to say like any one person is saying like, oh no, don't put ML in my game. Uh, most of the time it's very much the opposite. But it's like, how do you get into a, you know, 10-year-old C++ code base with, you know, three different custom unique pointer implementations and write your own module to do, you know, whatever inference you want to do kind of at go time. That's just like a really, I guess it's just like a really challenging problem from the perspective of like how many ML engineers write C++. Um, or like how many ML engineers have an interest in like game engine architecture. I feel like those are just two very niche subjects that tied together along with the fact that this code base is nine or 10 years old, makes it really difficult to go in there and make changes. Yeah, I, I can definitely imagine, you know, one, one of the challenges sometimes is like when you have a legacy system or something that already exists and you're wanting to kind of like port machine learning into it, you know, definitely, uh, Already, like operationalizing machine learning just in general is like very challenging, requires lots of skill sets. But if now also you need to like understand not just C, but specifically how Riot has been writing C in their yeah. code base, you know, that, that can definitely be daunting. Um, so, yeah, definitely a lot of, a lot of interesting stuff uh, there. Um, but yeah, so, you know, very curious. Uh, you know, as you were explaining earlier, you were talking about sort of your, your progression to start working where you are now in Riot. And you've essentially uh, kind of transitioned from more on like the software side to eventually now you're kind of like more on the data and ML ops side. And uh, very curious to get your take on, you know, what, what is the maybe like 
major differences on your sort of day-to-day uh, responsibilities or like what, what is different between those roles to you? Um, I think it's like, I think the, the, the best answer I've read for that is like the fact that your code doesn't matter as much as your data matters. Mm-hmm. Like that is like this weird kind of, um, you know, tendril creeping kind of epiphany that you have throughout like, no one really cares how crappy your PySpark code is. But if like the analysis that you offered is like really clean or like if the model that you've you've shipped has like a high level of accuracy and is delivering a lot of player value, no one really cares if you, you know, imported scikit-learn and did some Python code generation mumbo jumbo, um, which is very much different from from being like a kind of software engineer working on a product. Um, I didn't think that that divide was very big. Like, I think if you asked me in 2020, I'd have been like, get out of here, Skylar. I'm a software engineer. I just also think about data and there's no difference there. And I still like that answer philosophically, but like when I was then kind of put into the realm of like, okay, you're a software engineer and you're working on our game build tooling and you're working on our reliability tooling. It was just completely different. Like, you know, I would build out stuff and I, you know, I'd get the feature like working and it would all work great or whatever. It might be a little, um, it's maybe the word I'm looking for. The, uh, it might be a little Rube Goldberg-y, you know, like it's like, oh, well, some Jenkins job triggers this, which triggers that, which triggers that. But it's nice because I only wrote six lines of code here, eight lines of code here, whatever. Um, and then when kind of reviewing that and like, you know, talking to other software engineers, they'd be like, dude, just do this all in Python. Like, write like a 600 line <laughs> Python module. Let's do this all in Python so we can check it into Git and write unit tests and lint it and all this stuff. And it's like, God, like, this is dramatically different because I'm just very focused on like giving you the end product. But, you know, I think for like product software engineering, um, the product is assumed to be true. Like the game is already here and the game's not going to go away. You're not going to make it disappear tomorrow. So the code you write has to be maintainable and ready to go. And like, you need to look at the code as gospel kind of, um, Whereas everywhere in the data space I've seen, like it is, that is never the first story. Um, I think probably as you guys are also seeing, I think as ML ops and like machine learning is becoming more of, I guess, like a, a kind of software engineering trade that's changing. Like you are seeing people say like, write unit tests for as much of your model code as possible, you know, mock your, mock your training on like some kind of mock data use like observability practices to monitor your model as best possible. Um, So I think a lot of that is changing, but I think at the end of the day, like, you know, in 2025 or 2030, you're still going to see ML engineers who are half talking about their code and mostly talking about their data. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, it's interesting you say that, you know, I think that there's often uh, a lot of competing opinions on this kind of topic around like code quality and whatnot. Uh, There's a particular menu uh, person in our community, uh, Laszlo, that has like a lot of strong opinions about (laughs) uh, code quality. Yeah. 
Um, he has a lot of great blog posts on sort of like how he thinks uh, you should think about code quality. And it's uh, it's interesting to just see see the tension almost in the community of some people saying like, eh, it's not that important. Other people saying it's kind of like paramount. Um, but curious to maybe to uh, kind of contrast it with uh, some of the things Lazo has said. Uh, I think a lot of folks in the community are familiar with. Uh, he, Lazo wrote a blog post somewhat recently where he kind of made a separation between essentially code that's for analysis versus code that's, you know, for like production, more or less. Um, and he said like, hey, the code quality stuff, like just don't, everything I'm saying here does not apply to that first bucket of like analysis and whatnot. Um, so very curious to get your take uh, on that. Because uh, I think there was maybe some subtle nuance to what you're saying, Ian, but curious, do you agree with that? Do you disagree with it? Where where do you lie on that spectrum? I, f- I feel like I feel like the answer you want is like a hot take takedown, <laughs> and I don't I don't have that. <laughs> I, I I don't know. I I would never want to put a hot take against Laszlo because he 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 his hot take will be hotter than mine. I'm sure. Yeah, yeah I, I think um, you know this is something that me and kind of my um, so the my my direct kind of coworker uh, his name is Serge. Um, we are really thinking about this a lot because we're, we're, we're thinking about it from the perspective of like, you know, um, I don't know if you guys have it and I'm not sure if Laszlo has it, but I'm I'm sure he could probably speak to it as well. Or they, I should say they, um, there is just not enough people who are like software engineers working in the data space. Like we just don't have enough people who are doing it. So like, the current reality is data scientists are going to write things that go to production. Um, and that kind of sucks. I think everyone doesn't want that. Like data scientists don't want that. Um, but one thing we can kind of do to, to make that a bit easier is to try to like write tools and like write guidelines on like how to structure your GitHub repo, how to write tests, how to use a Jenkins job. Um, and we're thinking about that like a lot because we're trying to say like, how can we, you know, hide the data abstractions as much as possible so that we can encourage a data scientist to be like, okay, go back to, you know, your, uh, you know, you know, you know, your data structures class or whatever, and really think about the code that you're writing to make it like really clean or at least really efficient and like make the trade-offs that you made clear, um, because this is going to be hit by like millions of players if it's like in the line of uh, like direct gameplay. And it's really like, I, I think it's just like a really hard problem because it's like, we're, we're trying to take two very different approaches um, to something that is still maybe like super in development. I don't think data science is really a concrete field yet. Um, like, I think it's still kind of being built out. So, like, I think I think you could very easily, I guess my take is, you could very easily see two kinds of data teams. One data team that takes code quality extremely seriously and still ships player value. And one that doesn't take code quality seriously at all, like it's for the birds, and also ships player value. I think both of those are still, like, very viable paths, and we don't know which one is better yet. Mm. Um, I think, 
as a software engineer, I am more inclined to at least have a base level of quality where it's like, hey, if you're afraid to at least have me look at this code because <laughs> you know it's that janky, then like don't submit it. Like let's let's spend more time to fix it. Um, but I'm also very excited to see people who are really passionate about like how to write better code in the ML space help us make tools to do that. Like if Laszlo builds a tool that helps us like hold people accountable to like write better code, then like I guarantee you I will be at all the meetups, I will be at all the conferences, I will ship it in all the repos. Because I'm I'm here for that reality. I just yeah. I guess maybe I'm like deer in the headlights. I don't know which way is up and which way is right yet. Yeah, yeah. You know, like I similarly, like uh, I I keep waiting for Laszlo to convert that thought leadership into a product. You know, like yeah, uh, like, I, I'm ready for it. I'm here for it. Uh, but yeah, I think you said a lot of, lot of interesting things that resonated. Like in particular, you know, uh, we're in this situation that data scientists are writing production code, but you don't have enough of these engineers. Uh, and that kind of calls back to uh, another guy in the community, Mihel, who wrote this banger article, we don't need data scientists, we need data engineers. Uh, I think that resonated with a lot of people and that like, hey, we have like data scientists doing things that doesn't like really match their skill sets enough. Uh, so one thing I was, uh, since you were talking about like, hey, the reality is like, you're gonna have data scientists that are essentially writing code that goes in production. Very curious of like, how you think about structuring that or like what are the tools, techniques, et cetera, you use given this reality, data scientists are going to be writing production code. What can we do to make that better, a better, smoother process? Yeah, I think so. The, I think there are probably a lot of different like avenues you could go through to look at that. So I'll give you the more like, this is the most, direct answer I can give you because it's like the approach we're taking like as of today, which is we're, we're trying to, if not eliminate, severely reduce the amount of notebooks in the world. Like Jupyter notebooks are a fantastic tool for analysis, but like the moment you're thinking about like, I'm going to write this, you know, like little PySpark thing and it's going to be hit by a service then like we we try to tear down the the notebook kind of artifice altogether and we say like okay no like you're going to either a build a python package and you're going to ship the python package or you know you're going to write a java service or or whatever um and whatever is in your notebook just kind of does not hit production this is like the we we thought that this was gonna be like kind of a super hot take. Uh, I guess I guess to give like maybe like more context as to why we did this. One of the most successful projects that LDC has shipped is something called the Item Recommender. So um, when you go and like play League of Legends and you like go and buy an item, because um, you want to buy an item like every time you go back to base or like kind of a certain key key points. You can tell I'm not like a professional league player because I can't tell you when to buy an item. But like you buy an item when it's important to you in game. And when you bring up the item menu, we re-recommend like, hey, you're playing against these champions. You are this champion. You have this person on your team. You have this many, you know, Baron kills or whatever. You have this many champion kills. We think this item would be a good fit for you. Um, that product has been like very successful 
from the perspective that like players like it, but also because like it's a very maintainable piece of code. Like we have modules, we have unit tests, we have linting, we have um you know, we, we, we've treated it very much as like a small product that anyone can kind of come in and change, but we have like code review standards. We have, you know, like we, this is one of the only places I've seen it, but like we kind of enforce the use of Python typing. Um, so we kind of make use of a lot of the tools that Facebook built to kind of help us like do more intelligent linting and like more intelligent finding of, obscure typing issues that might fall underneath your, that might fall out of the, like fall out of scope of a data scientist or someone who just writes Python to get the job done, as opposed to like being a software engineer writing Python. Um, so we've seen that like, okay, we've treated this model purely as a product and it is more maintainable. It is more like observable. It's more extensible. Um, and this didn't use a single notebook. This has been a notebook list product the entire way. Maybe there's something to that. And it's probably not the notebook as a piece of technology itself, but more like the workflow or the mindset that it puts you in as you're developing in it. Um, so that's kind of the first thing we're doing is we're just trying to say like, if you know this is going to production, don't write anything in a notebook. And I guess that challenge has led to a kind of increase in quality in other places. Um, the downside is it kind of sucks for people who don't know how to do that stuff. You, you're adding a lot of extra work for them. Um, so I think that's number one. And I think, um, number two is like a frequent trying to treat models as like, I don't know if you guys have this, but we definitely have a lot of the problems of like a model goes to production and it's not looked at again until it's broken. And by broken, we mean like no longer doing the thing we want it to do. But, you know, along the way, we don't know if the accuracy of the model went down. We don't know if like the underlying data distribution has shifted or whatever. Um, we just know that now it's broken and it's not working and people are mad at us and yelling. Um, so we're we're also trying to like kind of kind of structure ways for us to say like, hey, every two weeks, every month, go back, let's look at our models. Let's kind of audit everything to understand that things are still working. And like that can very easily become like a meeting that could have been an email. So like running that smoothly, running that cleanly is still something we're trying to figure out. I don't know if that kind of answers your question, but those are kind of the two ways we're trying to solve it, I guess. Interesting. Yeah. You know, I think uh, you, you definitely uh, unraveled your hot take in there. You know, with, uh, you know, more and more of this uh, uh, notebook uh, opinions. And, uh, yeah, that, that's definitely a topic in the community that gets a lot of people riled up. And there's lots of proponents on either side. Um, I, uh, you know, maybe someday we can dive deeper and chat about this uh, with some big notebook proponents. But, uh, yeah, th thanks for the, those insights. That was super awesome. Um, so, you know, kind of like switching gears and maybe like leading more towards a wrap up, um, you know, you, you've had sort of a, you, you're kind of like well into your career now. Um, you've had a lot of different experiences. Um, so very, very curious, like if there was something you could change about your career up to now, what would it be? 
Oh, I would have took a networking class. <laughs> I uh, that that may be a weird answer, but like not actually understanding how computer networks work like works has has bitten me in the ass a lot. <laughs> I think that 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 probably would have been the first thing, at least from like a technical perspective. Um, from like a more personal perspective, I think I would have. I, I think the the one big change I would have would have done is like. Um, tried not to chase things as much and like try to have more open and honest relationships with people. I think like my first career, my my first job at Adobe, I had like a super incredible manager. Like even to this day, I'm still like pulling out lessons that this guy has taught me just about like, it is, it is kind of in the realm of how to be a good hang, but like, how to be a good engineer, how to be a good tech lead, how to be a good senior engineer, how to learn well. He taught me all of that without maybe even explicitly telling me. Um, but like at the time I was like so focused on like, I gotta be writing code. I gotta be like kind of the goat of, you know, some particular programming language. And I definitely wish I had like, um, I don't know, maybe just calm down <laughs> and just said like, hey man, enjoy this experience taking all the lessons, like really bask in it for a little while. Um, but you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, right? Like I think if I had done that, my career might've ended up differently. So. Yeah, definitely. If there's one best practice you wish that data engineers would take from software engineers, what would it be? Oh, that's a really good question. I think my answer would be uh, prefer composition over inheritance. Um, I, even now to this day, I think maybe you're kind of forced into it with like the abstractions that PySpark gives you. But like the number of like code bases I've gone into with a class named class ETL or class base ETL that then gets extended like 30 times that like has to implement some base method that just passes or something. Um, it just adds so much noise to like, like dissecting the process. Um, and then on top of that, I think like that carries into, I guess it carries into like the way the systems get designed. Like, Hey, like let's just make a new airflow job that can do this instead of maybe like picking the right system to do it or like trying to integrate the right system into airflow. Let's just make a new airflow job that makes a new airflow operator that does the thing because airflow is our new base class for everything. Um, so I think that's probably my answer. Awesome. Cool. And maybe to close things out, you work at a gaming company. We talked a little bit about games you play. What's your favorite video game? Oh. <laughs> um, the hardest yeah, question. Yeah, dude, it's... Huh? The hardest question we ask here. Yeah, seriously. Uh, dude, I... It's gotta be, like, Legend of Zelda Majora's Mask. Like, I, I just love that Bro, game to pieces. same here. Oh, man. <laughs> I love it. I just love, love it to pieces. It. I like every time I play it, I'm happy. When we got the re I got the remake on 3DS and I was like, it's just the nostalgia, the 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 emotion of the game. I love the dungeons. I just yeah, I can't I can't not answer that. Mm. Awesome. 
you're not going to like it, but I've never actually even played that game. So it seems like I'm missing something here. Both of you ranked that as your favorite. I think it's a lot of nostalgia of like, you know, being a very particular age and getting that game. Like, I, I feel like I was like the peak interest of video games right when that came out. So yeah, it has a lot man. to do with just like how old I am and being in the cultural zeitgeist at the time. But yeah. Dude, it's also just yeah. a very moving story. Like as an adult, it's it's oh. still actually quite <laughs> uh quite intense. So well, this is awesome, man. Thank you so much for coming on here and sharing some of your wisdom with us and re-taking us through everything that you're doing at Riot and also going a bit more philosophical uh, with us. And, you know, we've we've gone places I did not expect us to go, but I'm very thankful that we did. (laughs) Very nice. Yeah, thanks for having me on, guys. Uh, I I know it's probably a bit different than, like, talking about Feather or something, but uh, I'm happy to to be in the same place as those people. Yeah, it was awesome, man.